2: Going on, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, man? How are you?
0: Chilling, man, as per usual. But before we get started, let me be the first to say congratulations, man.
2: Well, thank you, Danny. I appreciate that. For those uh, wondering what he's congratulating me about, I uh, I tied the knot, or I didn't tie the knot. Not yet. Um, I took myself off the market. Forever, <laughs> I uh, proposed to my my girlfriend, so now I guess she is my fiance. That's what, right? That's, that's what they call those.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, tell me, how'd you do it? So, if you if you would like to know, I, I did quite. You know, it's so funny going through this process of uh, proposing and um, getting engaged and, and like planning all the theatrics around that as far as getting in a ring and then planning like a party and then informing friends and stuff like that. It It's a lot of deceit is involved in that.
0: Yeah. A lot. It's a like you started your, your marriage with on, on a bed of lies.
2: <laughs> it's predicated on a lie. <laughs> so um, I took her over to Brooklyn bridge park and you know, I made up a story about, Hey, We're going to go hang out with my buddy, Dan, not you, Danny. I have another friend named Dan and um, it's his birthday and we're going to go meet up with him and his, uh, and his girlfriend and, or no, his fiance, excuse me. And um, we're going to meet up with his parents and some other people that you may not know. And, you know, I just kind of made up a story and added some minor details Mm -hmm. to make it more believable. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to a weird restaurant afterwards. Um, So, you know, dress a little bit nicer. So we went there and um you know my my buddy Wait, wait. wait.
0: Did you tell her to get her nails did?
2: No, I did not. But strangely <laughs> enough, she did get her nails done the day prior. I don't know if she just had like an inkling that I was about to do it.
0: Well, she was going to go to a nice little thing. She did yeah. some
2: suspicious things. <laughs> but I definitely um was not covering my tracks that well because I was scrubbing the, our, our home I was scrubbing it. I was cleaning our walls because her the family walls? was going to come back and surprise us when we got back to our place right so like scrubbing our walls cleaning mopping um, just going the extra mile as far as cleaning. but to go back to the actual proposal so you know we planted at Brooklyn Bridge Park that has a great view of the of Fidi. a really good view of like the World Trade Center and, and um, all the, that, that beautiful skyline down there. And you know my my friends are posted up like they're FBI agents spying on Martin Luther King or something like that, <laughs> and they're just like pop up, and, and then I have to grab my ring that I got. And um, the the funny thing is, and this is what people, people are making fun of me. Um, I have the I have the corniest engagement line of all time. Oh, I gotta hear this! And uh, to give you, so to give you some backstory. The way I uh asked my fiance out the first time, you know, we were seeing each other for maybe about two months or three months or so. And uh my buddy introduced her as my girlfriend. And she and then we had never spoken about that. Mm -hmm. We never went steady officially. Right. So one day I was like, Hey, I've been kind of she's like, Why why did uh your friend's dad call me your girlfriend? and i was like well i'll be completely honest i've been referring to you as my girlfriend to other people <laughs> and she's like oh does that mean that we're dating and i said yeah i think <laughs> and that was how that's that's how um you know i asked her to start dating me but then so i did a play on that i've been hey i kind of been telling people that you're my fiance ah <laughs> uh, yeah, so a little bit of a, a cute kind of backstory, inside joke type thing. I think I nailed it. Um, but yeah, it was great. Um, I couldn't really be, I could not be happier um, as far as how everything went and as, what we're doing. And, you know, I definitely found the love of my life. And it's it's just been an amazing week, to be completely honest. I couldn't be happier. Well,
0: ladies, you lost your chance. He's off the market
2: now. (laughs) And just to go back to the deceit levels of uh, getting a, it's all just like, you know, I couldn't have been, I couldn't, she said there was about a 50% chance she knew that I was about to propose to her, a 50% chance. I've been, I've been kind of organizing this for the past like four months or so, as far as gathering her friends together and Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I'm like widely texting her friends in plain view. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she didn't find out. She probably did find out. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, a lot of couples I've discovered through this process, they actually get their rings together. You know, they'll, they'll go to, a, they'll find a jeweler right. together mm-hmm. and the girl will essentially just pick out the ring and the guy will just pay pay for it
0: buy it at some juncture and
2: then they'll be like all right we'll pick a day to surprise me Mm -hmm. and then they you know he picks a random day to give her that ring and and all that but i took the liberty of doing everything myself i just had i just got what she liked from her mom and then i went out and bought it myself Mm. which you know caused a whole another level of uh secrecy as far as like Going out to the jeweler, like lying to her when I was seeing a jeweler. But yeah, a lot yeah. of deceit. Funny thing, in my engagement pictures, there's a nude man in the background.
0: <laughs> what? Like a fully naked guy? Yes.
2: So there's a nude there's a nude man hanging out in sunbathing in the park. That's with his awesome. ass out in a thong. <laughs> so that guy will be part of my life for the rest of uh, eternity. Right. This mm-hmm. nude this nude man. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. But I'm looking forward to the planning of the wedding. It will be a Long Island wedding and uh, Long Island weddings are stressful.
0: Well, I hope I'm not pre- too presumptuous in saying, but I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to it. <laughs> I am invited, am I?
2: <laughs> you, you will be invited. Nice. <laughs> you can't, you're not invited to marry us. I, yeah, know I know that you are a reverend Danny minister. Danny, Reverend Danny of Belgabar. <laughs> um, but no, I we're we're doing it at the uh at the church. I might still show up in a link costume, just saying. <laughs> you can you can dress however you want. Cool. <laughs> After I check check with with Al and you know, <laughs> ask her what the dress code is, but other than that, once we figure out the dress code, you can organize Black. or wear whatever you want.
0: Black tie and Uh a Hyalurian shield.
2: (laughs) If you guys are interested, I will keep you updated on this uh, wedding planning (laughs) process because I'm sure it will be pretty entertaining because I'm not the best at planning events. Before we
0: uh, get off this subject um, and and maybe to segue into, you know, what we're going to talk about today, maybe the reason why your fiance suspected that you were, um, you know, probably going to propose to her it was because she got a leak do you think that maybe somebody that you were communicating with might have slipped i don't know
2: It could have i i most girls i talk to and i ask them like hey did you know that you were going to get proposed to that day they're like yeah i kind of i knew and sometimes they say their friends or family told them that that was going to happen in advance <laughs> or they just kind of sniffed and uh kind of follow the trail but i don't think anyone betrayed me and uh, betrayed my confidence in this process so (laughs) i don't maybe there was a leaker if anything she knew she kind of knew what was going on because i was just so damn obvious about everything (laughs) as far as like cleaning and all that stuff yeah i mean not that i don't clean but i was doing like you know i was cleaning as if i was like uh it was my job basically um but yeah I guess um, back to your segue to the leaks. So um, I want to first talk about this because it kind of relates to what we're going to speak about, and that is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. But recently, in a former intelligence analyst, he was just sentenced to prison for a drone program leak. Did you hear about this?
0: I didn't. I didn't actually. Tell me about it.
2: So, um, it basically, basically this guy, um, he's, uh, I'm just reading from this Guardian article. So, a former Air Force intelligence analyst was sentenced to 45 months in prison on Tuesday for leaking, leaking top-secret information about the U.S. government's drone strike program to a journalist. Daniel Hale, out of Nash- Nashville, Tennessee, has said he was motivated by guilt and a desire for transparency when he disclosed to an investigative reporter details of a military drone program that he believed was indiscriminately killing civilians in Afghanistan far from the battlefield
3: hmm.
2: well that's something so this guy came clean that that is something
3: you know and, how they say
2: the uh you know the, when people
0: sorry you know how they say so, that, the you know how they say that the truth will set you
2: free well I guess in this case the truth got him in jail. Well, that is the consequence when you decide that you want to spread light or leak information to the public, the change policy because that's usually the motivation for leakers is that they're leaking information to Uh, the public because they either have a guilty conscience or you know they think that there should be some sort of policy change
0: that's right we we learned all about that with uh our episode on the pentagon papers it's pretty much the exact situation
2: yeah and daniel ellsberg knew very well that he was going to go he was probably going to serve life in prison you know it was it was he was lucky that he didn't go to jail right he was He didn't go to prison or didn't serve life in prison just because of Nixon's shenanigans making it just like kind of a circus trial Mm -hmm. as far as like, you know, burglarizing him and allegedly trying to assassinate him and then trying to bribe the judge. Obviously, it's, you know, his Nixon kind of screwed himself. But, I mean, that's good because I think it's great that Daniel Ellsberg is not rotting in prison right now. Right. And he's, and he's 90, been an he's activist 90, for this
0: for um, one or
2: 90 in his
0: 90s. Exactly. And he's still an activist, too. And but he's, um, still, he's still kicking. Listen to that episode. It's really, really interesting.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there have been people in the national security state leaking documents since forever. And major newspapers have been publishing them. So in the case of Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers, that's the New York Times and the Washington Post. And it's hard to, it, it kind of like the line, what people are trying to figure out now is what's the difference between WikiLeaks and the New York Times when they publish classified materials or classified documents? Is there a difference? Do you think there's a difference? Um, maybe. We'll see. Well... According to New York Times legal team, they don't see the difference that essentially prosecuting Julian Assange for leaking classified information, that basically gives a right to really put anyone in jail, either the leaky or the The leaky or the leaker. Yeah. I mean— Which is, which is scary, which is a very very scary precedent that if you decide to be a whistleblower,
0: it's, it's very much so a, a scary precedent. I think, you know, there's, there's certain components of Assange's story specifically that I think warrant some conversation, um, particularly in his motivations, uh, to get some of the documents, and in his methods, in order to get them, I think many of those arguments are are weak in comparison to the overall um, uh, judgment that you know, as you pointed out, New York Times's legal
2: team sees no legal difference between. Uh, but their columnists do. Their yeah. columnists are very anti sanj but their legal team, their legal analysts, are like. There's really no difference between what we do and what he does. Right. It it sets up the president mm-hmm. precedent that if they can do this to Assange, they can do this to any reporter with classif with any type of classified secret or any publication so that's the real or anything. Threat like that. Right. as far as freedom of speech and as as far as your First Amendment rights and just transparency among people, among the public, and. Um, I kind of want to outline, you know, the difference of, you know, what they are and and why it was revolutionary when, when they started doing what they were doing. What WikiLeaks was and is, is it's a website that's dedicated to spilling the secrets of the powerful. So it's a place that was encouraging the leaks of original documents and just wanted to post them online for other journalists to go ahead and just you know, take it from there. Right. So, you know, they're just, they're just setting up a secure um, file drop. So somebody from the inside can drop that, you know, can, can leak that document and then give that to the press to actually, you know, spin that and, you know, bring that to the people. And, you know, this was an invention that there was a market for because in 2006, when the WikiLeaks, or domain name was registered in Iceland. We're talking about the height of the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And, And no shit, you know, there were crimes going on. But WikiLeaks established this portal for people inside government or big business or whatever power structure to make a difference.
0: Right. I mean, journalists, military, intelligence you know, and many others uploaded tons of information to WikiLeaks and, you know, still do today. And, and WikiLeaks has uncovered lots of shit. So corruption, crimes, financial things, government, human rights, uh, abuses, and so on and so forth. And I think the, you know, especially after uh, having that episode on the Pentagon Papers, you know, someone like Ellsberg, who was, literally photocopying all of those documents, uh, one by one, like he, you know, this is something that, you know, I think he would have appreciated if he had access to it in the time that he was doing his, his leaking and his work. Um, so yeah, very revolutionary, uh, this website in in terms of being able to expose
2: the truth here. And, you know, that prospect of such a website I really think, has brought out everyone's true colors. So as far as Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, government, big business, um, and also the legacy media, which has really led the pack in denouncing WikiLeaks because, no, I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think it's, one, the number one reason is because they challenge their role as gatekeepers of information mm-hmm. another reason is that i think when journalists or or uh, legacy media types or journalists look at julian assange they're kind of looking at everything that they're not you know they're just spin artists for the most part like pe- members of the corporate press are there to to really spread an agenda rather to inform people
0: so, uh, what was the what was the first documents they they ended up publishing? Because I think this this might be important to just kind of set the stage here.
2: Yeah. So they published a lot of stuff. So the first thing the first thing they ever published was something on this Somali leader who was planning on assassinating government officials, and then they followed that up by exposing how. The president of Kenya was basically just like looting the country and using the country as a, his bank account. Um, they had some stuff on like the Cayman Islands, like the the banks there. Like the, the um, offshore banks. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had, a, they did something on um, like this far right um, British National Party where they exposed like the membership list there. Um, they had this stuff on Peruvia where they basically. Um, leaked these um, these phone conversations between like government officials po- politicians and and um, like lobbyists, um, like talking about like um, just enriching themselves. Um, there was and, and before um, another. Before,
0: uh, hold on, before before you move on from that, I just want to point out that uh, the country in question is Peru, not Peruvia. <laughs> I can already see people <laughs> leaving one story. Peruvian, star review. I said Peruvian.
2: Peruvia isn't even a country. <laughs> I said Peruvian. That's politicians, right? Uh, I,
0: right? I'm pretty sure I heard you say Peruvia. <laughs> oh, all right. Well,
2: whatever. You all know what I mean. The country sometimes of just, Peruvia. <laughs> sometimes I just say shit wrong. It is what it is. <laughs> it's called bro history for I had to, a reason. I had to, yeah, right. <laughs> um But yeah, they also did a copy on, um, they had a copy of the protocol manual for soldiers stationed on, at uh, Guantanamo Bay. Um, They Mm -hmm. even had Sarah Palin's uh, Yahoo email. So someone hacked her email and, um, you know, they leaked some of these emails. Um, I'm not even sure really what they exposed with Sarah Palin at the time. I think she was talking to some, I'm not exactly sure, but that was like one of their big, you know, one of the first things they... We're known for. Um, So stuff like that. Um, There was another thing with like Icelandic banks, um, like fraudulent activity uh, there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, basically what he did is that he set up the system where people could anonymously upload these original files. And the contract was that, you know, you publish these or you, you know, you upload these files. And then, you know, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to vet them. And release them, you know, as long as that, as long as long as they're newsworthy, and you know if they're correct. Right. So you, you can't right. post revenge stuff on your ex girlfriend or something like that. You know, it's it's <laughs> like as long as it's <laughs> there's newsworthy a different website for that one, <laughs> and it's challenging some type of power structure, whether that be big business, politics, or or anything like that. Then they'll then they'll publish it. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think
0: that's a really good backstory, but, you know, all of those, those stories, while they're all in their own respect, you know, pretty big news. I think it wasn't until 2010, so four years into them being a thing, uh, that they really get some new notoriety. So they blew up in 2010 in the news because they started publishing a series of leaks that was provided by uh, U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. Um, among those leaks uh, provided by Manning, and trust me, there were a lot. uh, I think the most damning ones were uh, about the Baghdad airstrike, so collateral murder video, uh, the Afghanistan war logs, and the Iraq war logs. And and I want to talk about a a few of those uh, now because they are pretty nuts. Um, So this first one, uh, the Baghdad airstrike, or collateral murder as it was titled uh this is a uh leaked footage so video footage of a um uh of, of an of an airstrike uh that was conducted by uh, a team of two um u.s apache helicopters in and i'm gonna butcher this this is an uh, east Baghdad I mean, you don't have to pronounce the neighborhood East Baghdad. An
2: and yeah. you know it was cool. just kind of it was all like a horrifying it was a, a horrifying um video that right was basically just a slaughter of civilians which included two journalists right from rooters right so it's 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 39 minutes
3: of,
0: of gunsight footage and as you pointed out it's just it shows the crew of these you know helicopters just opening fire on a group of men and they killed many of them uh, and it was later confirmed that all of them were civilians, uh, including, as you pointed out, the two Reuters um, journalists, and both journalists died uh, from this. And and like, you know, collateral damage is definitely uh, an unfortunate reality of war. Uh, but I think what made this particular video and this particular incident like very heinous was that the the video actually shows the U.S. soldiers like laughing about it, like like it was a game or something like they were having fun just gunning down these obviously unarmed people uh and then it it shows them in a second strike uh opening fire on this van driver who happened to drive by and went to help some victims it was just i don't know man it was disgusting
2: yeah the, it was i mean the video disgusting. yeah the video showed us pilots gunning down civilians in cold blood and it's what motivated it was one of the reasons why Bradley, well, now Chelsea Manning was 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 um, like leaked this to to WikiLeaks because the Washington Post or David Finkel from the Washington Post he actually had access to this video, but he didn't say what really happened, and he refused to publish it mm-hmm. on the Washington Post. And mm. the gatekeeper, he was like, "Man, why aren't you there. saying yeah. this is not what happened? You're not saying, you know, you're not." explain the full story so that was one of the motivating factors um, among other things but you know one of the bigger scandals there as well I mean just besides the cold blood murder is that this took place in East Baghdad and just for context on the war in Iraq at that time is that this is the Shia Shia section of Baghdad fighting against Muqtada al-Sadr who was one mm-hmm. of the legs of the Shia United Alliance that we put in charge after Saddam Hussein. So essentially what we were doing is fighting against the people that the US was fighting for in the war or win. And you're right. You can watch this video and I mean, I don't recommend watching it or maybe you're into that type of thing, but you know these guys are are, are murdering and just having a lot of fun doing it. And then this civilian comes out and they kill this guy too. It's pretty shocking. And then one of the yeah, other reasons, nuts. and one of the other reasons why um, she was she was um, encouraged, or why she did this, one of the, was um, Chelsea Manning was, I think in in Iraq, she was in charge of uh, like booking people and then sending them off to jail to basically be tortured. So she was indirectly participating in in the torture program. She was an accessory to torture. Yeah. And, And one of the guys that was arrested was arrested for writing a newspaper article called, Where Did the Money Go? And like, where did the money go? Because it's about, you know, just corrupt financial dealings. You know, all the money that we were pumping into Iraq during the war, all that just went into the pockets of, of like defense contractors and like corrupt Iraqi politicians. The money didn't go anywhere. Right. Like there's billions and billions of dollars right. that are being pumped into Iraq and no one's seen a dime of it. So, this guy wrote a le- right. wrote an article, a news like a news article saying, "Where did the money go?" because the Iraqi politicians were stealing the money. And then Manning brought this up to his commanding officer or and um, you know, she was told to shut up and get back to work basically and that's you know mm-hmm. when another one of the reasons why he took his stuff to <laughs> to wikileaks um right because you know the combination of these reasons i'm sure she had other reasons as well but um i mean that wasn't the only thing so yeah we touched you mentioned that the um, the afghan war logs right or no
0: right and and this one is particularly poignant i guess for current events because we're uh, as per our last episode, here we're pulling out of my, Afghanistan, excuse me, uh, after 20 years now, and you know, in in the news story and in the you know episode that we're uh, doing about it, you know, we we point out how you know we didn't win this war and that it was grossly under. Uh, reported, uh, in terms of the violence and the chaos that ensued and, and how unwinnable it was. And, you know, the Afghan war logs, or I think they also call it the Afghan war diary was basically this massive dump by Manning of internal U S military logs, um, uh, of the war in Afghanistan. And, and it, it was at the time, at least it was considered to be like one of the largest military leaks in u.s history it's it contained a shit ton of documents it was like over ninety thousand uh reports and war documents um and that spanned between 2004 and 2009 which isn't even the full length of the entire war so you can imagine how much more shit there's probably you know flying around and you know b- before what's interesting about this particular leak is that before uh they released it publicly wikileaks actually provided this to three major publications, um, which I thought was a pretty smart move, um, you know, by by getting them, you know, to, to have that information first before they put it out to the public so that they can vet it, uh, and they were able to confirm the authenticity, in the three um, publications that they sent it to was The Guardian, um, New York Times, and Der Spiegel, um, and... In I mean, this is like thousands of pages that I'm boiling down to. It's just a couple of sentences here. But, you know, these documents obviously showed a gruesome picture of the death counts and the violence uh, in this particular war. And and there were, in in particular, there was many hundreds of incidents that, you know, went unreported of uh, of civilian casualties. So, you know... probably very much like the you know the Baghdad attack. There was similar situations happening in you know Afghanistan where they just weren't officially reporting them, but there were internal reports that were going around about them that just never made it made the light of day. It also showed a huge surge in these Taliban attacks against coalition forces, um, which was also um, undocumented officially, uh, and in some cases even classified. Uh, and and that kind of reminds me of you know the Pentagon Papers and how you know Ellsberg was basically showing how you know that they, they were actually losing the fight uh, in many cases and that uh, they weren't making making ground um, so very very similar uh, to to the Pentagon Papers in that respect and I think it painted a, just a much different p- picture of the war than what you know was being officially released and officially you know, uh, circulated in the media. And yeah, I mean, it exposed the truth about how the, how the war was going. Uh, and again, this, this happened, you know, pretty much in the height of it. in, in 2010, this is 10 years, halfway through it, <laughs> you know, right at the midpoint. Um, so it was, it was a pretty big dump.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Yeah, and then that was followed up by the Iraq war logs. Right,
0: and and remember how I said that the, you know, Afghan war logs were the biggest leak in U.S. military history? Well, this one blew the lid off of that one. Uh, so it was like a back-to-back record setter. Um, and in many regards, it was very much the same as the Afghanistan war logs, um, just a different country and a much bigger leak. Uh, there was, from this particular dump, uh, something like 400,000 um US army reports uh that were involved in this and the the key takeaway or at least one of them well, uh, was that it showed uh 66,000 uh civilian deaths out of 109,000 recorded deaths uh which is a ridiculous um that that is an absolutely ridiculous proportion of civilian deaths to to deaths um in particular and and again this wasn't for the whole war it's just for the period of 2004 to 2009 um, it's just the madness of killing of civilians is just outstanding from this particular leak.
2: The madness, and, ev- and and everyone knew this was well.
0: Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, didn't I think know. most people suspected it, or at least some people suspected. Like, hey, are we, you know, should we be here? We're talking about two thousand ten here, right? Like, we were already very much war fatigued at this point. Nobody expected to to be in in either of those wars for this long, you know, everyone, but by all accounts, they were, you know, initially when, when we were propped up to go into Afghanistan and, and eventually Iraq, they were just like, Oh, it'll be a quick walk in the park. You know, maybe a couple of weeks of major offensive and a, you know, a few extra months of, of, you know, cleanup and shit like that. And then that turned into a couple of years and then a couple of years very quickly turned into a decade. And at this point it's 2010. And you know, they're like, Hey, I think, I think by that point, most, most people were, if you weren't questioning the validity of those wars, you were, I think you were willfully, you know, putting your head in the sand uh, about it, so to speak. And, and at this juncture, this just confirmed those suspicions for a lot of people. Um, and the fact that they were vetted and, um, you know, authenticated by three major publications is, you know, kind of hel- helped with, you know, its validity.
2: And it, it wasn't just that; it was also the the State Department cables, which oh, yeah. was I forgot about Which that. was basically just U.S. diplomatic cables that had been sent from its consulates and embassies all around the world. Um, I guess to put this into context, like how big these are, and how many reports, and how much journalism, like how many independent stories were written, um, just based off the files and documents that were. In these diplomatic cables, um, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of files. If you just type in, if you do a boolean search in Google and you say "State Department cable confirm," State Department cables confirm, you will see you will see thousands of pages of different Google results with different stories. Like that's how mm-hmm. much these papers. Um, just changed the... Certainly fed a lot of journalists. (laughs) They fed a lot of journalists, but that's how many stories were created from these papers or from from these documents that they were uploaded. Just type in State Department Cables Confirm or State Department Cables Reveal, and you will find just thousands of different articles on just different stories. And, um, you know, there's all these sorts of scandals being exposed, like torture, um, you know, massacres, lying about casualties, like you mentioned, um, you know, just political pressures Mm -hmm. in both of those wars. And then she revealed, um, you know, everyone who was being held in Guantanamo Bay, which was a secret at the time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that that included, um, you know, just like horrible abuses, too. And then there was kids in there basically. As young as fourteen years old. And then there was also people who are eighty nine. So you had like senior citizens. the extreme ends of both of both age spectrums. You have a child a fourteen chi- year old as a child. I guess a child can right. you know, they say, Well, you know, fourteen year old can pick up a gun and, you know, strap a bomb to him, you know. And an eighty nine year old. An eighty nine year old in Guantanamo Bay. And then, um, you know, the military arrests her and court martial[s] her. And, you know, she's charged right. with mainly the collateral murder video um, or leaking the collateral murder video to WikiLeaks. And she's is, essentially, she's put in solitary confinement and humiliated and tortured, you know, like made to be sl- like slept naked and stuff like that, just brutally. And the narrative is that, Manning and Assange um, and pretty much anyone else who ever leaks anything or is thinking about leaking anything or thinking about providing classified information to the public, what they're doing is that they're putting the CIA in danger. They're going to put spies in danger if they release these documents. And you're also going to get soldiers killed if you reveal classified information. Like you're doing this selfishly. Selfishly, you have no idea what you're doing. You are putting our troops on the line, and there's going to be consequences because of your reckless abandonment for you know the sensitive information that no one else can see except you know the anointed ones that we that we elect. And this wasn't true. You know, it was never shown that anyone was murdered or assassinated or killed because of these leaks there's no evidence to ever point that anyone was killed or murdered because of, of any of the leaks any of these major leaks you know between the Iraq war logs the Afghan war logs and then the state department cables there was nothing like that that was ever brought into it there, there's no evidence to suggest anything like that um, you know the other argument against it is that hey you, know, you release these files, you're preventing us from doing uh, diplomacy. like you're undercutting our ability to negotiate with other countries and um, to, um, you know, make deals with other countries. And you're also, you know it's kind of strange that they're just targeting democratic institutions like why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? And those are the major arguments against, you know, leaking this information, which is just I mean, I, but
0: it's 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 insane, dude. It like like I was watching this documentary on this topic um not too long before we started this episode just to kind of jump start and and you know, see some of this stuff and and Leon Panetta, you know, former CIA guy, um Secretary of Defense was on. He was one of the interviewees and and honestly, like I was just kind of disgusted in his tone, and maybe, maybe you know, the editors on this documentary just did a clever job at, you know, editing in parts of, you know, what he was saying uh, on the interview um, in a way that was, you know, maybe unflattering uh, to him to to align with their narrative. But you know, you were talking about like that there were consequences to leaking these things. Well, what what are the consequences of, you know, these? Uh, Apache pilots just gunning down civilians in cold blood for fun, you know, and laughing about it. Like, what are the consequences? Where are the consequences there? Where are the consequences for their, you know, commanding officers that ordered the strike, you know? And so I think it's, just to add that these,
2: as far as consequences, I'm sorry to jump in, but it's no, you're good. As far as consequences, not only just consequences for the people committing war crimes, but that's creating that type of behavior, on the battlefield is creating more danger for other soldiers there because if you're massacring people if you're slaughtering people if you're using if you're um you know doing brutal acts the only thing you're going to be doing is creating more a more uh spiteful and vengeful insurgency to fight you right so that's right you are creating that's right so
0: i i just i just find these are these types of arguments to be like like In a vacuum by itself, I understand what they're saying, right? Because, like, if you do, as an example, if WikiLeaks were to have, um, you know, leaked the names and you know locations of, you know, spies all over the world, then yeah, that would put them in danger, right? But as far as I've read, they've never um, uh, leaked that type of information, Uh, and as you pointed out, nobody's ever been proven to be like murdered or killed or anything like that because of these leaks, so you know if we're talking about ends justifying the means here so far wikileaks hasn't done any harm and the us military has done quite a bit of harm but you know the the us government is make trying to make this argument like sweep this major atrocity even if we just take the one example of this you know uh uh of this collateral damage video uh and and like I don't ever I didn't hear Leon Panetta even make a single comment in that and that whole thing and maybe he did and they just edited it out but like I haven't heard anyone in the government say like yeah that was bad you know or like acknowledge like that was that was probably wrong and we should look into that and we should investigate that but you shouldn't leak documents like that's never the argument the argument is always deflection and gaslighting on the on the issue you know and that that just makes me kind of upset you know because you know two wrongs don't make a right for sure but damn that one wrong is much bigger than the other one <laughs> like i don't know how to t- i don't know
2: how it's how else to explain that you know like it's it's fucked up um it's um it's kind of funny it's, it, this is not funny but if you go back to uh, George H W Bush during during the Iran Iraq war the U.S. shot down an Iranian commercial airliner
1: mm-hmm. and,
2: you know, killed a bunch of civilians. So about 200 right. Iranian civilians boarding this commercial airliner. And yeah, this is like the Iranian mis-
0: rally cry against the and U.S. And it was a mistake.
2: Right? No. And, you know, George George Bush was uh, the senior. Is like, I'll never apologize for the United States, which obviously it's not going to sit well. With uh, with people, after you shoot down uh, a commercial airline full of their their countrymen, but um, so this is kind of like unrelated, but it's kind of, it's one of those uh stories of how I kind of one of those I didn't have like some massive shift, you know how some people are like they can go back to like that one moment where like they change their opinions mm-hmm. on stuff because I used to be you know, mm-hmm. very. America, fuck yeah. Da-da-da. Come in now to save a motherfucking day you now. I used to be very much like that when I was younger. And I think most people my age growing up at that time, right after September eleventh and you know, kind of seeing the bombs being dropped during the Iraq war, you were like, Whoa, this is kinda of cool to see these bombs go off and all this stuff. Is like our soldiers are kicking Or At
0: ass. least it was justified in a certain way. It was justified. Way, you
2: know? You know? But that was my mentality when I was in high school. Um, didn't really know. I, well, I didn't know anything about the Middle East um, or, right. or, or anything about, you know, global politics or, or just anything in general as a teenager, as most teenagers don't know anything. Um, but okay. I do remember I was in I was in a car with my friend and we were like listening to the radio and there was like a report that the U.S. accidentally bombed a, a hospital. And my friend was just like, "Oops," but then we looked, at, and then it was funny. We were laughing, and then we were like, "That's really messed up. This is terrible. Like, what are we laugh- like? This is just awful." And I remember being yeah, like that being kind of a a what well, we weren't we weren't laughing at the suffering. We were laughing at like just the absurdity of of mm. the presence there and how we say we're liberating these people and then we just bombed the hospital like that was kind of like it was like a very dark laughter and i was like yeah like i'm i'm laughing because it's just it, the absurdity of it and that's when it mm-hmm. kind of hit me that must have been around like i think it was around the time of like when isis invaded uh iraq and uh i was like man that's when i really really started shifting my thinking or, or at least a moment when i I, I kind of I can kind of recognize as a pivot but you know obviously it was a very gradual pivot that that took many years to really change my mind on these things. Um, but just to go back to Assange and why there's a lack of support for him, um, especially in the yeah. US and the UK was mainly because of the rape investigation in Sweden. So <laughs> yeah, in August of 2010, Swedish prosecutors issued an arrest warrant for Assange based off one woman's allegation of rape and then another allegation of molestation. Right. I think
0: the story is that he was sleeping with both of them um, without a condom. And later, both women learned about each other and that they were both sleeping with Assange. And they ended up going to the cops to see if they can have him take an HIV test. Um, and from there things kind of spiraled out of control. Um, and then that kind of spurred on the international, uh, arrest warrant that was placed against him. But initially, um, the allegation of rape and, and molestation that that wasn't the initial, that wasn't the initial allegation, at least this is what's documented. And, you know, if you, if you ask Assange, of course he says it was all consensual and I frankly don't know who to believe here. Um, I mean just because he made you know a platform to you know disperse truth doesn't mean that he is beyond reproach or that he you know you know he's that that we shouldn't you know scrutinize people for wrongdoing. Um, so you know'm I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with with this particular point it's it's entirely possible that he did rape somebody.
2: Well, this is probably the what Assange defenders struggle with the most, and understandably so. Obviously, you don't want to defend a rapist, but obviously, the simple argument for Assange supporters is that, that he denied it, first of all, and it's unproven allegations, which he has since denied. And it's very hard to believe an un- unproven allegation about a known target of U.S. intelligence agencies. Um you know, the warrant was withdrawn shortly afterwards with, with uh, you know, prosecutors basically said they didn't have enough evidence for rape allegations. And it was a different prosecutor after that reopened that rape investigation. And she wanted to charge him with what the Swedes call minor rape. So like, minor, what the hell is minor rape? Like, there's a like a like, Minor rape, like mine what if you call something minor murder? Not minor as in like an un, someone not an age, like a less severe rape. This is the reason why Assange leaves from Sweden to Britain
0: right. and and actually, at the time he he stuck around in Sweden uh, to be interrogated, I think he was interrogated like two or three times by different investigators. And he waited around for like five weeks for uh, allegedly he waited around for a follow up that never happened, um, like he was just waiting for the next step. So he left to London. And that's what got him in a lot of trouble, because, you know, of course, Assange, you know, he's, he's not he's not dumb. He's also maybe a little bit conspiracy minded, but I think, you know, not not for good reason. You know, he had his ideas that the the warrant that they put out there uh, was like a pretext for extradition. So he, he went to London and he, uh, went to the Ecuadorian embassy and he applied for asylum there. Uh, and at the very least the Ecuadorian assembly agreed with his suspicions, uh, that, you know, all of this was bullshit and it was a pretext, uh, to, you know, get him extradited to the U S for, you know, so that they can charge him with some crime of leaking, you know, espionage or some shit like that, you know? And, you know, he ended up staying there for seven years,
2: uh, spoiler alert, (laughs) well i think everyone knows that at this point um but you know while he's in britain that's you know that's when the iraq war logs and the diplomatic cables are released um but you know i want to talk about some of the consequences of these these um these leaks um specifically you know some of the consequences of the state department cables um so the arab spring You know, um, Mm you know, Ben Ali of Tunisia was a notorious thief and corrupt dictator who was just looting the country. And the ambassadors were, you know, they detailed all and they documented all of Ben Ali's corruption. So when this stirred up in the Tunisian media, you had... um, what Mohammed Bazizi, I can't pronounce his last name. Bouazizi. But ba- ba- I'm not going to butcher it anymore. But you know the guy who was um, like he was like a PhD candidate who um, you know uh, the Tunisian economy collapsed, which led to him basically selling being a uh, a fruit vendor on the street.
0: Oh, the fruit vendor guy. I remember him. And, and then
2: they they try to shake
0: him down. So basically, and like take his fruits.
2: So the police came and they shook him down for not having the right permit to sell fruit on the street. And um, in protest, he went over and he filed, you know, a complaint at you know the local police station, and they didn't do anything. So he can he goes back and he lights himself on fire in protest just like how the buddhist monks did to the south vietnamese government um you know it's like i don't want to say it's a common form of protest but it's an extreme form of protest that has been done before in the past uh there was a young man in gaza who did that protesting the israeli government the government um you know it's it's something that has has happened before and once this guy kills himself in this um, very theatrical way, riots break out, which lead to Ben Ali and his wife being exiled to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, they, basically they, they you know, what was uncovered was that Bin Ali's wife, her family, was basically just completely looting the family, like looting the country, just, you know, oligarchy looting stealing and um they go to saudi arabia with like gold bullion and gold bars in their plane they become the government of tunisia station no but then you know they're the one tunisia is like the one government or one um arab country that doesn't end up completely screwed through a horrible civil war after um after the arab spring because then the egypt said oh how about that and you know they went and they overthrew their puppet dictator Hosni Mubarak and you know of course they end up having elections and you know the Muslim Brotherhood wins um then um you know in response to the Muslim Brotherhood winning which wasn't surprising at all you know they uh the American uh coup said hey you voted for the wrong person so, you know, they right. end up installing Fatah al-Sisi, who's basically just Mubarak's clone. And this also led to the revolutions in Libya and Syria, which were basically just subverted by, you know, the quote-unquote free world to, you know, remove Gaddafi and eventually, well, try to remove Bashir al-Assad from power. Um, That's right. Another Another thing to come out of the WikiLeaks was... This is like another massive consequence was um, so WikiLeaks released that these U.S. soldiers handcuffed and executed some women and children during a 2006 raid and they killed the baby at point blank range. It's and then what up. these guys did is that they called an airstrike to destroy all the evidence. And this was, and this was the same time when Obama was trying to renegotiate with Iraq to keep the keep American troops there. And then when the news came out in Iraq that confirmed these brutal murders of this you know, of this poor family, and then they tried to cover it up like the LAPD, you know that this created the political will or political cover at least for al-Malaki to say "Hey, we can't do this we, you have to go I don't have any type of um, political backing to negotiate your continued stay and presence in Iraq right now you know we can't we can't renew this contract after this horror story and um you know, that got the U.S. kicked out of Iraq until ISIS caused another war, thus calling for America again. Um, ISIS, a.k.a. Obama's freedom fighters, caused another war. <laughs> um, another another leak was the um, April Glaspie memo. So we've talked about this a lot in other episodes, but as ambassador to Iraq for George Senior, George Bush Senior, she basically gave the green light to Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. Because, you know, the story of why Saddam invaded Kuwait was that um, after the Iranian-Iraq war, you know, both these countries were trying to rebuild. You know, they were both in terrible debt. So OPEC came out with like a plan to to, uh, to drive up the price of oil so that Iraq could, uh, you know, use that, that extra revenue to rebuild their country. And then Kuwait was uh, overproducing, their, they were overproducing oil, driving the price down. And Iraq was like, what the fuck? And um, they were also saddam hussein was accusing kuwait of uh slant drilling and you know drilling oil that was technically under iraq's territory and when uh saddam hussein was talking to april glaspie the ambassador to iraq she said well you know we don't really care what happens here like we don't we're not really concerned about these border uh, disputes between arab countries and um you know, Bo- you know George H. W. Bush said the same thing. He's like, "Yeah, what what do we care about? Iraq? What do we care about Kuwait? Like, Kuwait has never been an American interest ever in our entire history before 1990. When was Kuwait as part of part of like any type of American sphere of influence or concern? It was always a British. Um, it was always like a, a, a quasi." British colony like it was always a British interest um it was it always um like who, who gave it who who the US didn't give a fuck and then that's like the story that we always joke around joke about comes with uh Margaret Thatcher and convincing <laughs> yep. George Bush hey you know they one day George HW Bush says you know we we're not we, we don't really care what's going on in that world and then the next day after a couple of days with uh, Margaret Thatcher, he comes out and he's like, "He's Hitler! He's Hitler! Dog, He's Hitler!" Um, so another story. So another story was when Obama thwarted a Spanish court from prosecuting Cheney and Rumsfeld for war crimes because I guess under um, I don't really understand the exact uh, precedent or how. A spanish court or an international a court from another country charges to political leaders or what's the legal process of that but i know obama went to spain and said hey you better cut this out or we're going to cause problems for you um there was there was um in the leaks they discovered that the u.s encouraged the coup in honduras in 2009 um man there were so many things that were discovered by we that were leaked through WikiLeaks, that you know it's really impossible to to keep track of all of them. All right. Well, you know,
0: at this point, I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, some of the elements of Julian Assange's uh, what I'd like to call imprisonment in the you know embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK, um, because you know obviously we, we've went through at length all of the. All of the things that WikiLeaks have done and all of the implications, all the geopolitical things, you know, uh, ranging from, you know, deposing dictators, Arab Spring, you know, exposing corruption, you name it, right? Like, so I think we kind of beat the dead horse here. I think the reality of this is, since we're talking about Julian Assange, is, is I think we should be talking a little bit about the conditions that he's been put under as a result of doing what at least some people would consider a service to humanity, um, by, you know, exposing these things. Of course, if you're on the other side of this argument and you think that it is dangerous, um, you know, to expose it, I think you should still take a look at the ways that, you know, uh, that he's being subjected to, uh, almost an inordinate amount of, uh, repercussion as a result of, uh, of this. And I want to start by saying that, you know, earlier on, you know, we talked about how he was alleged to have, you know, raped somebody uh, or sexual misconduct. And that case got dropped due to insufficient evidence. And then it got picked up again by a different prosecutor. You know, the, the whole process was a little fucked up. You know, Julian Assange obviously had his suspicions that this was a pretext for extradition to the U.S. because as, as a you know uh from pressure from the US uh he, he spoiler alert he ended up being kind of correct about that but you know he ends up going to Ecuador, uh to Ecuador <laughs> well i guess it's technically Ecuador he went to London um and he went to the Ecuadorian embassy the uh, the government of Ecuador you know the, the the president there was sympathetic to him and to his you know um to his uh, uh request for it's asylum five right? Exactly. For his request to asylum, they accepted him. And he went into the uh, Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, and at that point, he was trapped. That was a dead end, right? Because as far as uh, embassies go around the world, wherever there's an embassy, that embassy is technically foreign soil, right? That if we have an embassy in, you know, anywhere in London, let's say, that Complex that building is technically American soil, and so in the same way, the Ecuadorian embassy in Britain is Ecuadorian soil. So uh, the British government has no uh, right, no legal right to, you know, go in there and you know do like a swap mission and and you know scoop up Julian Assange uh, and arrest him based on this international arrest warrant that was given to him um, from the Swedes. So.
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.
0: He's safe-ish in there, but you know th- this is a small building, and—, and you know, I, i'm not very familiar with london uh, i've only ever been in the airport but you know i hear it's a lot like new york in the sense that a lot of the the buildings are older and they're you know uh they're not necessarily very spacious it's very it's not very commodious if you will and so the, the building wasn't necessarily equipped to have a full-time guest right even even the the uh some of the ambassadors that were talking about it on this documentary i watched were saying that you know like they didn't have a bedroom they didn't have like a like a full kitchen you know like it it wasn't it wasn't properly zoned if you will for somebody to live there definitely not for a very not for seven years (laughs) um and so you know the the spaces that he was living in was very very confined um in and uh in a lot of ways he was restricted in the types of people that you know come visit him and in the beginning he was kind of a rock star i think you know dropping all this information there were so many people that went and saw him from politicians to celebrities um to, to um, you know, activists, you name it, they were going in and out uh, in the early time. but as time went on, uh, they started kind of cracking down on his uh, visitation rights, if you will. Uh, and you know, for everyone out there that's listening to this show who's experienced at least some form of lockdown uh, due to coronavirus, you can kind of get the sense for, you know, what it does to a human being's mental health and even physical health in many cases when you're confined to, you know, an indoor area. So obviously lack of uh, vitamin D is a big problem. Uh, that's, you know, when you're not getting enough sunlight, lack of exercise because there's not, he, he couldn't go outside to run around or even do very much. Um, and then of course, you know, the human interaction, that lack of human interaction really does take a toll on a person. And, you know, a lot of us had a lot of heartburn um, in the last year about lockdowns. And, you know, it, it caused a global, you know, conversation about, you know, the, the government's power to restrict your mobility and things like that, even in the face of, you know, a very dangerous epidemic. For Julian Assange, you know, it there wasn't a coronavirus for seven years for him. It, it was just that he leaked a bunch of shit and... You know, now he had to hide in this Ecuadorian embassy um, for a very long time. Right. So like if it wasn't
2: a coronavirus is that police set up round the clock guards to arrest him if he stepped outside.
0: That's correct. In a show of force. And they even had him like, you know, in the back doors that posted at all the windows like they were watching him all the time. So if he ever stepped foot outside, they were going to get him. Uh, and they had le- they have legal recourse to do so. Right. You know, from from the just just a. From a legal standpoint, they there was an arrest warrant for him. He was a, um, a high-profile criminal, uh, at least according to this arrest warrant. You know, he had fled his his bail conditions, right? And the bail conditions said that he couldn't leave. And by going to London, by going to the Ecuadorian embassy, he had basically, you know, he was a flight risk, right? And so things really start getting bad for him uh, when the Ecuadorian government uh, awards a contract to a company called UC Global or UCS Global. I forget exactly. Um, it was a small security firm. It was headed up by a former Ecuadorian soldier. His name is David Morales. Um, and, you know, go figure. It's like, you know, I I don't know the, the, the specifics around how the hell it, it was that this small, tiny little company uh, was able to score such a important or big, you know, contract, especially for Ecuador, not, not knocking Ecuador, but like they were housing, you know, probably arguably one of the most wanted men, you know, uh, on the planet at the time, you know, in their embassy and, and they were contracted to do security work for them, uh, up to and including all of the video surveillance, uh, that was already on site before, um, Julian Assange took asylum, took up asylum there, uh, but they definitely stepped this up. So uh, they installed a shit ton of cameras, more than they already had, higher quality ones, uh, and and that was just fine by itself. You know, um, I think it's it's for the protection not only of uh, the embassy but also you know for Julian Assange's protection. You know, like if if one day you know the British government decided to do a sting operation and like <laughs> you know go in there, and now they'd have the evidence, like good, high-quality evidence of, of, of something like that. Um, but it, it was for everyone's safety, and I think everyone agreed to it at first, but then they started doing some weird shit that was just, like, not cool. Uh, as an example, they started installing these cameras that had internal microphones, so they were starting to tape and record all of the conversations that we're having, and there weren't many places that they didn't put these these microphones. Like, the entire building was bugged. So all the conversations that he was having, including ones with his lawyer, uh, who would eventually become his fiance and mother of his two children, um, and uh, with his other lawyer from Spain. Uh, and also, you know, he was still running WikiLeaks out of, out of the Ecuadorian building, so they were keeping tabs on him. Um, they also, so there was this article that I pulled up from Computer Weekly. It was pretty good. Uh, so I'll read a few things uh, from that. So two former staff of UC Global have claimed in an anonymous witness statements that the company's founder supplied surveillance footage and audio recordings to, quote, American friends, which were passed on to the CIA. Uh, And then moving on a little bit, um, the former UC Global operations manager said staff collected information about the visitors of Assange, following orders from the National Intelligence Secretariat uh, of Ecuador, uh, Senayin. Uh, so to unpack that a little bit, they were David Morales's company, UC global, uh, headed by David Morales. He was giving them direct orders to spy on Julian Assange. And he was gathering that information and he was encrypting it and passing it along allegedly to his quote, American friends. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, And they use this in coordination with uh, his eventual arrest. And I'll I'll talk more about that in a moment too. So just hold on to that for a second. So there's this person, Melinda Taylor, uh, who was a lawyer. I'm I'm reading again. Melinda Taylor, a lawyer uh, specializing in human rights and international criminal law, who visited Sanj in the Ecuadorian embassy, is due to testify uh, 13th November. This was last year. And according to uh, court documents, UC Global allegedly recorded the meetings between Taylor, the lawyer, and Assange, and Assange's partner, who's also a lawyer, Stella Morris. Four audio tracks in wave format of more than 12 hours in length were allegedly found on the computers of UC Global during the judicial investigations. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. They had. Hours worth of privileged conversations between the lawyers of Julian Assange and Julian Assange. There, there are legal ramifications. You're not supposed to do that. And I know that they're running the the security contracts for this. But this is if anyone's able to have those recordings, it's the government of Ecuador, not some private company. That shouldn't be, you know, uh, that shouldn't be on your hard drives. That shouldn't be there. Um, so it's already fishy. Uh, okay. So according to court documents, the recordings were made by magnetic microphones attached to one of the fire extinguishers. Okay. Now this is getting really wild, right? So they were putting bugs in there for ostensibly no other purpose, but to spy on Julian Assange. Like the cameras, maybe like you can, you can make an argument that it's for everyone's safety cameras with audio again, pushing it a bit, but sure, you know, but literally putting hidden audio recording devices in the rooms, that's like, that shows to me, and, and this is just my take from this, that shows intent, like intent to to surveil illegally at that. Um, a document, reading again, a document presented by Assange's lawyers before the national court on January 16th states a folder with the name... Stefania Morisi objectos que Porta Carpeta was found on UC Global's computers, and it contained 18 JPEG form, uh, photographs of the uh, electronic devices that the journalist carried on one of her visits to Assange were stored, including three mobile phones, two digital recorders, several phone chargers, and 21 USB sticks. Photographs show that UC Global workers disassembled one of Maurice's phone, um mobile phones to remove the SIM card and photograph its serial number and the phone's IMEI code. Okay, I'm going to break that down because that's super geeky. One thing that this UC Global company, the one that was contracted to do the security here, started doing is they started cracking down on who can come in. And one of the policies that they had was that you had to surrender your personal electronic devices at the door before you can enter. And so they would surrender their mobile phones and their recording things and stuff like that. And the one part where it says there were pictures on UC Global's computer of um, of this journalist's phone, her personal phone, and that doesn't seem super harmful, right? Except when you read the part where they open up the phone, they remove the SIM card, take a picture of the SIM card, its serial number, and the phone's IMEI code. Why is this important? Why? Because if you have the SIM card's serial number, and the phone's IMEI, you can now start tracking the uh, activity that that phone is having. So we're extending now beyond the reach of just inside of this um, Inside of this facility, now they have the means to say all of these phone records, all of these phone records coming from this particular SIM are related to this particular person, and you know she is just a journalist, so she has nothing to do with Julian Assange other than she's writing a story. So they're really pushing the boundaries here on what should be morally or even legally permissible uh, to do, and. And you know there was a, a whole court case that uh, Assange, you know, had set up against this particular company because, frankly, it's very clear that they were spying on him. Now the twist here, and this is a pretty big twist, is that there is a connection to uh, through a couple of you know third parties to Trump. Uh, so as you know, you know when Trump was. Uh, on the campaign trail campaigning against Hillary Clinton. You you might remember a couple of, um, uh, moments where he was like, ah, I love WikiLeaks because they were like posting all this shit about, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails and, and all this other stuff. And it obviously was helping him, uh, you know, in his, in his race. Uh, and when he gets elected, ultimately they kind of change his tone, right? They, he's saying, oh, I don't really know WikiLeaks, whatever. And actually. he gets much more aggressive. The U.S. government gets more, much more aggressive in pursuing uh, Julian Assange. And how do we get to Trump from Julian Assange? Well, this guy, David Morales, the, the owner uh, of UC Global, he starts going to Las Vegas very frequently. Uh, initially, he's saying that he had a contract with the Venetian Hotel, which is one of the uh, bigger, um, you know, more elegant ones. Uh, on the Las Vegas strip. And the Venetian and he's going to Venetian Hotel like a couple times a year, very frequently. And and you know, while he's in, you know, the Venetian Hotel, he's sending these emails, you know, according to the court documents that were um that were published in, in the uh, case against them, that was having the the chat records that he was having with his team, you know, was that, hey, I need the documents for uh, you know, today's visitor log, or hey, I need the videos for you know, today between this hour and this hour. And he's asking for all this information, all this information coming out of there. We don't really know why. Uh, like, nothing is proven yet. But I will say that the Venetian Hotel is owned by Sheldon Adelson. And Sheldon Adelson is a very big, or was, did he die? I forget. Is he dead? He's dead now. Thank yeah. goodness. He's dead. So Sheldon Adelson was one of the biggest Republican donors and huge connections with Trump, arguably one of the reasons why he might have won, right? Because he funded the damn thing.
2: Well, he funded he funded more so he, I mean, the Republicans everything. running. Yeah. He's a big Republican donor. He, I think he um, provided Trump with like... 500 million dollars but it was mainly well, just a paltry was,
0: 500 million dollar sum <laughs> it yeah.
2: was mainly he was funding like um other republicans running for senate in congress he's a terrible person right and
0: so the allegation here is was that a
2: terrible person
0: Think al- yeah the the allegation here is that you know the u.s government vis-a-vis the Trump administration, vis-a-vis Sheldon Adelson, vis-a-vis this guy, um, the the head of UC Global, was using this influence that they had and all this intelligence that they were getting such that they were able to spy on Julian Assange and listen into all of his conversations and figure out what he was doing and what he was going to leak and all this other stuff. And they're building this case against him. And I think the culminating point here is that at one point the the Ecuadorian government was going to had awarded Julian Assange a uh, well, obviously they had awarded him uh, citizenship, right? So he became an Ecuadorian citizen through this process. But they also, at one point, awarded him uh, diplomat status. And the thing about that is that if you're a diplomat, you can kind of, you know, with immunity, move freely, you know, through London. And the plan was that he was going to, you know, he had all of his documentations that he was a diplomat.
2: Diplomatic immunity.
0: Exactly. So he had all the documentations that he needed. He was planning, you know, to have like a a diplomatic car pull up and pick him up, drive him to a private airport, fly on a private plane and go to Ecuador, right? That was the plan. And they were plotting this plan for a while and they were pl- they were planning on doing it on December 25th, right? So Christmas, because they said, they thought, oh, you know, everybody's going to be like busy with Christmas and, you know, it'll be less noisy and stuff like that. So that's when they're going to do it. Um, and I mean, ultimately they knew about it, <laughs> you know, and they found out that, you know, Julian Assange started he basically got got shook he was like he was getting this indication that that he was going to be arrested if he left even with the diplomatic immunity so he decided not to ultimately you know flash forward a couple years they're still surveilling him and there's st- allegedly uh, this information is going to the United States intelligence agencies and um on the day that he gets arrested, you know, it was, it's kind of a long story, but, you know, the original president of Ecuador, who was supportive of Julian Assange, had resigned. And then there was this new president, and this new president had wanted to make closer ties with the United States. So they started adopting a a less friendly, you know, um, position towards Julian Assange. And then, of course, you know, not to not to completely absolve Julian Assange of anything, apparently, he was, you know, being a really bad tenant and, you know, who can blame him after several years of basically isolation in one place, he was probably losing his mind. Uh, according to, you know, like his family and friends, you know, he was in not a great mental state. So he probably was a piece of shit, you know, like a bad roommate at that point. Um, So all these things culminated to uh the embassy saying, all right, fuck it. We were letting the British go ahead and, and uh you know, come in and, and arrest him. That's fine. And so british come in they go and arrest him and literally on the same day they go ahead uh the u.s starts its extradition papers it's not a coincidence man it's it's um it's like they they knew they they knew that ecuador was about to do that that was about they
2: were about oh to yeah blow, of course doors of up. course they knew you know they of knew of course they knew they knew and everything they had the indictment all planned right um they're, they're already so ready to go. they're already they were 100 ready to go um So it's getting super hot in here. So I don't know how much I can handle podcasting anymore. It's about feels like it's ninety eight degrees in here. I'm covered. I'm drenched in sweat. Sorry. However, there's there's one more thing that I think we should bring up, and then I don't know, put a pen in it, and then we could talk more Julian Assange stuff. We were talking about this um, probably about a month ago, um, not on the podcast and private, but one of the key witnesses against the against Assange. Um, he admitted to this Icelandic media comp, newspaper or publication, that he lied yep. about his indictment. i about his testimony.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then it, they went deeper into it, and it turns out this guy is just like a fraudster, criminal, pedophile, <laughs> who no, I'm like real, like, not even real, real like who yeah. was. Um, already arrested for abusing about like eight young boys and the FBI basically recruited Mm them to um, testify against Assange saying that they would um, you know they they would you know he would get a better sentence like I don't understand how that judge and how that British judge doesn't throw that case out at this point like how do you not throw that case out well I mean what is even the purpose like anymore to you already put if you want to prove a point that like yeah don't don't feel government crimes yeah. i don't even get the purpose of of uh throwing him in jail anymore prosecuting him like you tortured this guy for a decade i think isn't point made already that if you decide to stand up against the empire and um you know create some platform that's against our interest you're going to be tortured for at least a decade wasn't the point made already like what is what is the it's just set, like such a relentless pursuit yeah. on this guy well i mean at it's least crazy.
0: one at least one judge throughout the extradition the, it was in january uh, a lower court actually denied the us extradition um <clears throat> but a month ago the higher court because
2: the US prisons are so bad.
1: Right.
0: And and a month ago the higher court, you know, approved well not approved, but they took up the case again. So we'll see what happens there. But right now he's in a supermax prison in in, in the UK. And also, to make things worse, you know, he was in this supermax prison for the coronavirus. So they Stopped him from getting any visitors for something like five straight months, so he was in total isolation from everyone and everything. on On top of everything, so I, but I guess maybe he's used to it because you know shit. He did seven years in in the embassy in Ecuador, so. All
2: right, let's let's let's. <laughs> what are, what are we talking about right now? Let's end this podcast. Okay. Um. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Bro History um it is one of those summer nights where it is so hot while recording this it feels like it's about a hundred degrees and we were having audio problems all day so it's going to take a lot of work to get this episode out so we However, hope you appreciate it <laughs> we will get this episode out um but thanks for listening uh we really do appreciate the time and support Um, If you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show is rating and reviewing it. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon-brohistory. Anything else? No, that's it. All right. Peace, guys. Peace.